Amen. We'll dismiss the children to Children's Church at this time, and it is a blessing to have great children's workers. We see Amy in the corner. It's great to have Amy back with us. She had some surgery recently, unplanned surgery, but God has provided healing, and it's good to see her back with us this morning. It is a blessing to have everyone with us today, and obviously um, we are always honored to have you with us. But before I get into my message this morning, I wanted to take a few moments to honor some folks who don't always get to do this. There are many people that serve to make our services possible each week. However, I'm not talking about the church staff or even the volunteers who are serving in the children's ministry or in Sunday school. I'm talking about the men and women who have served in the United States Armed Forces. I imagine everyone in here is aware that this Thursday will be Veterans Day. And it is an opportunity for us to celebrate those who sacrifice of themselves, putting their lives on the line so that churches all across America could have the freedom to worship. I'm talking about all those who have served overseas or at home. I'm talking about all those who have served during times of war or times of peace. I'm talking about all those who have willingly left their families for the sake of protecting not only those in the United States, but those around the world. Today, as we celebrate the upcoming Veterans Day, I would like to honor all those who have served or are currently serving the United States military. If that's you, would you please stand? All right, now I'm going to ask most of y'all to be seated, all except for Elaine and my mom who is in the back out there, and I don't know if she's listening to me. Can somebody get her attention and tell her to come in here as well? I appreciate it. The reason I wanted to have these two remain standing is because we are privileged to have two ladies who have served in the military at a time where... Honestly, women in the military was not truly respected or appreciated. And I am so grateful for your service. I wish I could just give a gift card to everybody and a card of appreciation to everybody. But Tim is going to help me because he's going to deliver a couple of cards, one to each of y'all. Now, I knew how many ladies we were going to have here that had served in the military. So we're going to simply say thank you for your willingness to serve. You are a blessing. And Tim's going to get you one as well there, uh, Mrs. McClung. So, yes. So what branch of military were you in? In the Army, all right? And same with my mom was in the Army. So thank you all very much for your service. Again, I do thank all of our veterans. You are an incredible blessing, not only to me, but to this church in general. Today, I want to conclude my series on who God is. Over the past month or so, it's been a blessing to look at the constant character traits of God, the things that are true regardless of our circumstances that you find yourself in. God remains the same. Now, I will say that there are many other such character traits that I have not covered in this series. 
simply because it would cover months of preaching to be able to get all of them in. An example of this would be the fact that God is always good. We haven't really talked about that so much. It doesn't change based on our circumstances, although we may not always feel his goodness, and we may even question his goodness, yet he clearly does remain good regardless of what we experience. Now, I want to point out that everything we've looked at regarding God's nature and his character traits have been things that we could very easily relate to. For example, Colby started out our series by looking at the fact that God is sovereign. That means that he is in control. He's over everything, and there is nothing that he cannot handle. That ought to bring us great encouragement, especially as we go through all the junk that is associated with this life. Then we looked at the fact that God is ever-present. How good is it to know that you can never go where God cannot go? That no matter how far you've gone, how far you've wandered, that he is still able to reach down and to pick you up. I know that for me, that is very good news. And then we related to this, we talked about the fact that he is also all-powerful. That was actually last Sunday. Do you ever feel like your problems are too big? Like there's no way anyone could help you? I know that I have. Or maybe you've thought that your problems are too many. I know again that I have. Yet God is still bigger than all of our problems. And if he's over everything and he sees everything because he is everywhere, and if he's genuinely the most powerful being in all the world, then he is also the perfect one to serve as our merciful judge. And there will come a day that all of us will stand before him in judgment. And on that day, we will see both his mercy and his judgment exercised. But it is within this last element that we also see a challenge for each of us. Within God, we see both a balance of truth and grace. And while this should encourage each of us, this also should serve as a model for us as we deal with those around us. I want to talk about this for a few moments with you this morning. If you would, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. That, again, is the Gospel of John immediately after the book of Luke and before the book of Acts. You have three letters that are later written by John, but this is fairly close to the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Within these few verses, we see that God is the one who sets all standards. When you see the word with a capital W, 
we're actually talking about the person of Jesus Christ. He wasn't some construct that came about in response to the problem of sin, where the father is looking and saying, well, we've got to do something about this sin problem. I know we'll have a son. No, from the very beginning, at the moment of creation, Jesus was already God. In fact, he was an active part of creation. He set the world in motion. He set the standard of what was expected for all of mankind. And he even determined what would be a suitable payment for sin. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. When God created the heavens and the earth, being all-knowing, he already knew that mankind would sin. That means he also already knew that this new creation would one day lead to his own sacrifice. My, what an incredible kind of grace. I don't know about you, I think I'd rather just not create. If I know it's going to cost me that much, if I'm going to have to endure separation from my heavenly father, if I'm going to have to endure the abuse and the rejection of this creation, I'd rather just not create. Yet God in his incredible love for his creation still created simply because he loved us that much. That is an incredible kind of grace. And just so we're clear as to who we're talking about here, Skip down to verse 9 in this same passage. I'm talking about the Word. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Clearly, we are talking about Jesus here. The word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the only Son of God, and defined as being full of grace and truth. Now, my guess is that all of us have met people who had a lot of grace and had a lot of truth. In fact, I would even venture to say that everyone has at least some grace and truth within them. After all, we are all made in the image of God. And if we are all made in the image of God, then we ought to also have the capacity for both of these to exist within us. But I suggest to you today that there is only one who was actually full of grace and truth, and that one is Jesus. That is because he is the one who sets the standard of what grace and truth are all about. You may have a little bit of grace in you where you can show grace when somebody does something wrong but it's not the same as being full of grace, where you are so full that you begin to splash out on other people. That's the kind of grace and truth that we find in Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. In fact, Jesus even defines himself as the truth. 
In John 14, 6, Jesus declares that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He then adds that nobody can come to the Father except through him. But he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is because there's only one path that leads to salvation. And that salvation is predicated on the standard which Jesus has already set. And following that path will always lead to life. Again, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus has very clearly defined this for us. Well, I know that grace and truth are incredible blessings to us. I love when I get grace. I love when I hear the truth. This kind of coincides a little bit with a sermon a couple weeks ago when we looked at how God is our merciful judge. We want mercy, but we also long for justice. Well, we want grace, a parallel to mercy, but we also need the truth, a standard, almost like a job description. It's nice to know exactly what is expected of us. This is the standard that you are to live to. This is the truth, the foundation that you have. How many of you ever taken a job and you didn't know what was expected of you? It's a very dangerous place to be because you never know if you're measuring up. Your employer comes to you two weeks in and says, how come you're not doing your job? And the response is, well, I'm not really sure what my job is. There's a problem there. But with us, we have Jesus who has given us the standard already. My question is this. If we are all cre created in the image of God, if within each of us is the capacity for both truth and grace, then how can we exercise truth and grace toward those around us? I know this is supposed to be about the Lord and what he has, and I do want you to catch that he is full of truth and grace, and that is an unchangeable characteristic. It's not something that, based on your circumstances, he has a little less truth today or a little less grace today. He is constant. But what we receive from him, we ought to be able to put into practice and the way we live our lives. Before I get to the answer to this question of how we exercise that truth and grace toward others, let me also add that the truth is always the truth. I know that there are those who are around us who would like for us to think that truth is somehow relative, that what is right for one person may not be right for the next. But if truth is established by God's word, by he himself, not us, and God is never changing, then that truth should always be constant. That's called absolute truth. Now, I know that the world around us is constantly changing. Society is constantly attempting to redefine what is acceptable but as those who are part of the body of Christ, we need to know that society does not have the authority to determine what is right or wrong for me. Whether we're talking about one's integrity, sexual purity, or the value of life or anything else out there, God has already determined what is acceptable. That's absolute truth. And I know that the influences are everywhere, attempting to reestablish truth. I read this week of a Twix commercial 
that was pushing a transgender agenda. Just sell your candy bar and leave the truth to God's word. We don't need everybody else trying to tell us what's right and wrong. We have that already in the word of God. But before we spend too much effort blaming our culture for this wavering truth. See, it's easy for us to get mad at them out there. It's easy for us to get mad at the culture because they have this dancing standard of truth. But the problem is not so much out there. This may be a little harder for us to receive, but maybe the problem is within us. One of the problems within the church is that we no longer are all that familiar with the truth of God's word. So few of us are regularly in God's word and we barely know the truth. In fact, we hear something that sounds nice and we automatically assume that it must be okay with God. Maybe what needs to happen is that we need to get back to actually knowing the absolute truth of God's word. Stop blaming them for the condition of our world and make sure that you know the truth that is found in the word of God. This will lead to my first point. I do apologize. I'm, I think, 20 minutes in and I'm just getting to my first point today. We need to realize that not everyone knows the truth of God's word and therefore we probably don't need to have equal expectations for everyone. You know, one of the key words that we've used so much in the society today is equity. The idea is that everybody gets the same treatment, but the truth is we don't want equity. The fact is we shouldn't give equity, especially in regard to this. The truth is you should not expect the same thing of those who are outside the body of Christ as you should expect for those who are inside the body of Christ. In fact, I would say to those who don't know the truth, we need to intentionally display grace. And that will be very different from what we're going to talk about for those who do know the truth. And before anyone suggests that I'm being too soft on our society or those outside the body of Christ, you should know that Jesus treated the Pharisees different than those who had no religious education. His mindset appears to be, according to Luke chapter 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. There's the expectation that those who are in the body of Christ who have had this foundation, you have been given much, therefore there is a much higher expectation that has fallen upon you. The alternative to that is that for those who do not know the truth, we need to offer a lot of grace. And of course, that doesn't mean that the truth ceases to matter just because people are ignorant of the truth. Now, the truth is still the truth. But how we address those who don't know the truth must be different than how we address those who do know the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, Paul instructs Timothy on how to present the truth 
in a non-believing world. Timothy was a pastor. Timothy is trying to reach the lost. And there are people in his church already that he's trying to lead. But you know what? You don't share the same way with those who are already in as you do with those who are yet to come in. He says that the Lord's servant must speak with compassion. In verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He then adds that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The idea here is that we must still speak the truth, but we do so in a way that demonstrates love and grace to the world that is all around us. A few years ago, I was coaching a softball team, and I found myself in an interesting situation. The fastest girl on our team had never played softball in her life. Well, normally you put the fastest girls at the front of the lineup so they get on base as often as possible, but you also put the girls who have never played at the end of the lineup because they're not likely to get on base quite as often. But this girl was determined that she was going to play the game and play it well. She was fast enough to where she knew that if she hit the ball and it merely hit the ground anywhere on the field, she was probably going to make it to first base. And she became my leadoff hitter, even though she had never played softball before. Well, I expect my girls to be aggressive on the base paths. And one night I decided to see how well she could do at stealing third base. That's one of the hardest bases you will ever steal because it's a shorter distance from home plate to third base. Well, she shined. Her speed and a perfect slide got her in to third base. Of course, I'm standing there at third base and I'm celebrating and she immediately jumps up, steps off the base and begins to brush off and she gets tagged out <laughs> because she has just stepped off the base. Now, as the coach, there's a part of me that I just want to, are you kidding me? You just made a perfect slide. What? Do you? And I want to fuss, but I can't because the reality is she had never played this game in her life which means she didn't even know that there was a certain expectation to keep your foot on that base. I know at first base, you can run right through the bag and it's okay. But at third base, if you step off the bag, you can be tagged out. She didn't know. As a result, I had to show her incredible grace. I actually hugged her, told her how proud I was of her for stealing third base and told her, you're out, but I want you to learn from this particular situation. As her coach, I had to show grace because she really didn't know any better. When we deal with those who are outside of Christ, we also need to show grace. But we also need to know that grace does not negate the truth. That girl was still out. Yeah, grace says, well, you know what, it's okay. But you're still out because the truth is you stepped off the base and therefore you were tagged out. Now, of course, for those who are in Christ, we should have a very different approach. I told you a minute ago, for those who do not know Christ, we need to display grace. 
But for those who do know the truth, we need to demand holiness. We don't like to talk about this too much in church nowadays. It makes us uncomfortable. You mean God wants me to live a different way than what I have before? You mean God has certain expectations? I thought I prayed a prayer. Is that not enough? Well, I'm going to tell you, when you surrendered your life to Christ, he did grant you salvation. And I celebrate that, but he did not intend for you to live as if you did not receive that salvation. Instead, what he wants is a transformed life. He wants you to be made new. A few minutes ago, I mentioned how Jesus addressed the Pharisees. Tell me how much grace you hear in Jesus' words as found in Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. I got to tell you, the only grace that I hear in this passage is the opportunity to make things right. He's not sweeping anything under the carpet. He's not giving them the free pass. Well, you know, you, they just didn't know. They did know. And therefore, they should have been living a different kind of life. He says, woe to you. And then he starts to name calling. Now, they're accurate names. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind he identifies the fact that they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And instead of telling them that there is no hope for them, this is where the grace comes in. He offers them the chance to make it right. Go clean the inside of the cup. Go clean the inside of the plate. Because, yeah, you try to look good on the outside, but you are filthy inside. He's not just passing judgment on them. He's calling them to be changed. Too many of us in the church have become really good on the outside. And we look really clean and the rest of the world looks at us and they would say, that's what it is to be a child of God. But we have allowed filth to remain in our own hearts and lives. Oh, it's only when nobody else is around. Nobody else knows what I'm doing because I'm here by myself. Or maybe the thoughts that are going through your mind, you're trying to keep them captive, but the truth is you've been hanging on to bitterness and ugliness and sometimes selfish ambition. All the things that Jesus calls out in the Pharisees, unfortunately, I think all those have existed within the church at some point or another. What Jesus is saying here is, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. I don't want you to be filthy on the inside. It is time for you to be made clean. For God has high expectations for you and for me. We need to call each other to holiness. Listen, I'm all about grace. But when you know better, you should do better. Let's make sure that our lives reflect the presence of both truth and grace to the world around us. 
Let's be people who offer grace. Man, there are so many people around us who need the grace that Jesus alone can offer. Do you remember there was a time that that was you? That you were without Christ and you needed that grace and you needed someone to step in and show you a, a, a gentle kind of love that still spoke the truth, but in a way that said, man, I know that that guy loves me. I know that lady loves me. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a pastor, a Bible teacher. Maybe it was a coworker. I, I don't know who it would have been. But the point is, you, you weren't always where you are today. Somewhere along the way, you were introduced to the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe God could use you to introduce someone else to the grace of Jesus Christ. But as he uses you to introduce them to that, maybe he could also use you to introduce people to the truth that's found in his word, that we can be different, that we can be redeemed, that we can live with a hope and the promise of eternal life. And there's a great truth that's there. I know the grace is great, we get that, but that truth is great too. We need both in our lives. Will you be God's agent to bring truth and grace to those around you? If you would, bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for the hope that we have, the promise that has been given to us, that one day all of, all of the brokenness of our world will come to an end. We thank you for the truth that we don't have to be the same people that we were before you came a part of our lives, that we can be transformed. But we also look at the world around us and we see the brokenness of our world. Well, we pray for grace. Those who would try to redirect us to some new kind of truth, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts to change who they are, that they may know the truth of your word. Lord, help us to be so grounded in the truth that when they begin to proclaim their relative truth, that we would be so firmly planted in the absolute truth of your word that nothing could ever mislead us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be disciplined to get to know your truth. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your agents. Allow the grace and truth that dwells in you to flow from us into the lives of those around us. Father, I give you praise. In just a moment, Father, as we participate in this act of communion this morning, Lord, this is an opportunity for us to remember the truth and the grace and the hope that is found in you. Lord, I pray that if there be one here today that maybe their heart is not right, but that right now you would begin to speak to their hearts so that they can participate in this act in a way that celebrates what you have done. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to not just remember the life of Jesus, but what your sacrifice was all about. How are we changed? Lord, be with us as we participate in this ritual this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are going to participate in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Some people will call it the Eucharist. Some will call it communion. Honestly, it doesn't matter what you call it. Uh, what this is, 
is an opportunity for us to remember. We have very clear instructions in God's word. We are never, I know we're entering into the Christmas season, but we're never told to remember the birth of Christ. But we are told to remember the death of Christ. Jesus said, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So clearly, we're not called to remember his birth, but we are called to remember his death. And the reason for that is because it is his death that changes everything for us. We were without hope. There was no suitable sacrifice to make up for the sin that we had participated in. But Jesus Christ became that suitable sacrifice for us. You see, all the way back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve committed sin, blood was shed for the purpose of covering up for their sin. Remember when they were in the garden and there was only basically one sin that was available to them. And sure enough, they found that one. Don't you wish there was only one sin available to you? The world in which we live, there's all kinds of sin available to us. But there was one sin and they were told, do not eat from this tree for if you do, you will surely die. And sure enough, the time came that they did eat from that tree. And the wage of sin was already death. Now, the thing is, they didn't die right away. Instead, they immediately recognized their shameful nakedness, and they tried to cover up before God is walking with them in the garden. When they do come out, they've got leaves covering up their nakedness, and it is not a suitable covering. So God makes a suitable covering. Actually, he didn't make one. What he did was he took the skin of an animal and he covered up their nakedness. In order to take the skin of an animal, that animal had to shed his blood. So from the very beginning, the wage of sin was already death. Now, there was a death that would come to Adam and Eve down the road. But from the very beginning, there had to be a sacrifice to cover up for sin. The problem is, every sacrifice that the people of Israel made, it was never enough. Because the truth is, they'd have to come back again. They would still struggle with sin, and they would need another sacrifice and another sacrifice. And finally, God says, I will put an end to this. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, we talked about it at the beginning today, to be the sacrifice for you and for me. His body being broken, his blood being shed, it meant something. What does it mean to you? You don't have to verbally answer, but I want you to think about this for a minute. How have you been changed because of the sacrifice of Jesus? I'm going to give you a couple of quick answers for me. Uh, number one, I was destined for hell and I now have the hope of eternal life. I have heaven on my horizon and I'm so thrilled that I actually had no hope. I was a young man who had no idea what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an accountant for the rest of my life. Man, if you're an accountant, please don't take offense. I don't know where Christian Schmutz is. Uh, he may be out there counting money, which is good. <laughs> I am so glad God didn't call me to do what Christian does. God called me to do something completely different. That's not to say you have no hope. I want to make that clear. <laughs> the point is that God put me where I needed to be. And God had a plan for me. And I am so excited and so grateful for what he did. You know what? I was trapped in sin and God made a way for me to be set free. Well, I don't have to be the same person that I was before. How has God changed you? His sacrifice, his body being broken, his blood being shed 
was all about setting you free. It was all about forgiving your sin. It was all about paying your price. It was all about giving you hope. And I hope you know that hope today. I've got some individuals who are going to come and they're going to help serve communion. And we're going to invite you to come. But as you do today, I want this to be an opportunity for you to remember. To remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe while you're waiting for everyone else to receive the elements. Or maybe while you're waiting to receive the elements yourself. Maybe this becomes an opportunity for you to simply pray and thank God for what he's done in your life. I look around, some of y'all have been touched by the Lord in so many different ways. Some of you have had a spiritual healing, I, even within the last year. Some of y'all have had physical healings where you know that there was no hope and God gave it to you. Some of you have had relationships that were broken and God restored those relationships. This is a great opportunity to say, thank you, Lord, for what you have done, because without the blood of Jesus, none of this even matters. Allow this to be a time to simply say thank you. I'm going to pray once more, and as I do, I'm going to invite those who are supposed to serve this morning, if you would come forward and receive these elements so we can distribute them. I ask once everybody comes forward, uh, we'll ask you to come and receive the elements. There'll be a station over here, one in the middle and one here on the side. Once everyone has taken it back to your pews and received it, we'll all partake of it at the same time. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you not for the these elements, the bread and the grape juice, they're just ordinary elements. We know that. But they represent something that is far from ordinary. They represent the body of Jesus Christ that's broken for us. They represent the blood of Jesus that has been shed for us. And today, Lord, we pray that as we spend time remembering, that we do more than just remember that someone died 2,000 years ago. But we remember recognizing that what that someone did, Jesus, what he did changed everything about us. But I pray today that you would help us to truly remember who we could have been and then recognize who we are because of what you've done. We were sinners, but we have been saved by grace. Lord, help us to not take that for granted today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We invite you to come and receive the elements of communion, and we will make sure that everyone gets some this morning. So, I'll do right here. Receive the elements of communion.
as Jesus met with his disciples on the final night at the Last Supper, he shared with them about what would take place in the hours ahead. Jesus would be rejected. He would be betrayed by the people that he loved the most, that they loved him the most, yet they still turned their back on him. But even greater than that, he would pay the price for our sins. Jesus told them, this would represent my body. This would represent my blood. There were ordinary elements. People ate bread at every meal. People drank wine at every... I'm going to tell you, this is grape juice. What he was doing was not saying that my body is becoming bread, my body is becoming wine, but rather when you eat every single time, not in the middle of a church service, not when we celebrate as a body like this, but every time you eat, I want you to remember what I did for you. I want you to remember my body that was broken for you. I want you to remember my blood that was shed for you. Remember how much it cost me. And remember how much I loved you. See, he is the truth, but in this single act, he is so much grace. Can you imagine someone willingly allowing their body to be broken and their blood to be shed for you? Well, that's exactly what happened. Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. He said, every time you eat this, I want you to remember me. And that's what we're going to do here today. As Jesus took the bread, they would have passed it around. I can't get mine out of my cup. Jesus took the bread and they would have passed it around. Each one probably would have broken off a piece of it. He said, every time you eat this, I want you to remember my body that is broken for you. They then would have passed probably a wine goblet of sorts around the table. Thirteen of them had gathered, twelve disciples and Jesus. He said, this represents my blood that is shed for you. And every time you drink this, I want you to remember me, remember what I did. Father, as we come before you today, we remember what you did the brutality of the cross, the abuse that you took upon yourself, not because it would be enjoyable in any way, but rather because you loved us so much, the grace was so strong that you could not leave us in our sin, but rather you became the payment for our sin. As we come before you today, we say thank you. We thank you for your grace but we also thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray today that you'd help us to live in such a way, not just in this moment as we celebrate communion, but help us to live in such a way that we celebrate the grace and truth of God every single moment of our lives moving forward. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be your agents of grace and truth to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have you with us this morning to be able to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper with you. I would just ask if you'll leave the cups in your pews, there should be little cup holders in front of you. If you'll leave them there, we'll come back through afterwards and we will clean them up. Thank you for participating with us this morning. We did not take up an offering in the service. So as you leave today, you'll see that there'll be people at the doors to help receive the offering. We invite you to please feel free to do that. Thank you for being with us. Now go in peace.